You're listening to the Local Futures Podcast. In this series, we explore the power of a growing worldwide movement, the movement to shift away from corporate globalization and consumerism, and to strengthen local economies and place-based cultures instead. In this episode, Helena Norberg-Hodge talks to Charles Eisenstein. Charles is a pioneering storyteller of a new world. In his words, the more beautiful world our hearts know is possible. His writings and talks, renowned for their eloquence, deal with civilizational history and myth-making, new economies, spirituality, pandemics, power, climate change, ecological living, and, at the deepest level, who we are as human beings. Helena and Charles have been friends for a number of years, working together in the International Alliance for Localization. In this episode, they discuss truth, metaphysics, learning from traditional cultures, activism, and more, exploring various aspects of the civilizational transformation at hand in a post-COVID world. They decry the power structures that continue to dominate modern global society and share stories of hope from the grassroots. to see you, Charles. Really, really happy that we have a chance to talk. And, you know, we've been friends and colleagues for more than a decade. Yeah. Um, But I'm, you know, I just find that you have a new, fresh perspective on the world all the time and love you for being so awake and alive and, and willing to share it. I so envy your ability to write so beautifully as well as speaking. Yeah, thank you, Helena. Um, it's lovely to talk to you as always and happy to see your face. In this time, as you know, we have this raging battle going on around the world about truth and we have this extreme polarization and uh, and and you with your beautiful message, which I actually got today, you know, that ultimately the most important thing is that we maintain our compassion and love and respect for others. I so agree with that, totally. But I think it is also now a worthwhile topic to look at, you know, what, is there a truth? Is there a reality out there? And is it important to try to agree on what is real and what isn't real? And I keep coming back, you know, from my long experience in indigenous culture to this conviction that um, the earth is very real and the earth is our mother. I reject that image of people holding the earth in their hands. I want us to have an image of the earth holding us in her hands. And yeah, I wonder what you would say about that. Can we agree? Would you agree fully with this idea that it would help humanity? to agree on that baseline, that the earth has these rules and limitations and regulations, if you like, and that of course, it's not always easy to agree on exactly what they are, but should we have that as a sort of baseline agreement and can we then come together more easily? Yeah, so, I mean, this this question, I mean, you're you know delving all the way into metaphysics here when you're asking, you know, is there truth outside of ourselves? Is there reality outside of ourselves? Uh, it certainly seems 
these days that people are living in two separate realities, accessing different or more than two separate realities, accessing completely different sources of what they call fact, and barely even able to communicate with each other, not even able to establish a ground of debate. Uh, because to debate somebody, you have to at least both accept some source of fact. And we don't seem to have that anymore. So that breakdown in communication, I think, offers an opportunity to find things that we do agree on that maybe aren't even part of the debate. Like often I think that the terms of the debate, what we agree to disagree about, is actually part of the problem and obscures things that we might fundamentally agree about. So you mentioned this idea of holding the earth as if earth were some engineering object that we can apply our technologies of control to uh, in something that we call progress. And that is that idea, that um, narrative, that that story, that 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 forms a perceptual reality, that's still very, very strong. That's behind the whole response to COVID-19, where we're, you know, we're, we're going to master this thing. We're going to find something to dominate, find something to engineer, engineer the genes, engineer the body, engineer a virus. I mean, it was caused by the same mentality. So I, I say that that this, let's put it this way that the apparent realities that are generated by our paradigms and by our stories have a kind of a lifespan. And the one that has carried us for so many decades or even centuries has become infirm. More and more people are dissatisfied with it, no longer feeling at home within it, and deeply yearning to find some other um, story about the world, some other source of truth. And many of us are now looking toward indigenous cultures or maybe just let's say traditional cultures uh, or as Orland Bishop terms them, cultures of memory as a source for other stories, other, other myths, other accounts of who we are and, and what reality is. And so maybe part of that is what you were saying, um, fundamental limitations in nature. Although for me, um, I don't know, I, I, I tend not to think that the limits of nature are going to save us from ourselves. I think that the transition isn't, in, in my view, it's not so much as, okay, we have to respect the limits of nature but more as we have to start holding life sacred and well, devoting ourselves toward, toward and, beauty and wholeness. Yeah. And there, I think for me, it's more about the abundance of nature than the limits of nature. Mm -hmm. Once we understand and get closer to the earth and understand that that abundance actually could provide us with much healthier, happier, ways of living and of course the beauty that you just mentioned the richness and the beauty we're talking about you know infinite complexity we're talking about infinite ongoing change and and 
a web of relationships that is so, that is magical and rich. And so I think, and I do think I, that I would, as I see it, prefer not to talk about another myth or another narrative, but rather, from my point of view, it is about coming closer to that truth of the, yeah, of the magic and beauty of the living world. And as we get more deeply connected to that, as we allow those lenses that we've been trained into that have created this very speedy, fragmented, distant relationship with the living world, that those lenses create not only unending uh, unhappiness, but, but it's, that it's those lenses that have created such a mess out of the living world. And all the time what's been marketed is the idea this is progress. And we've been, I mean, would, you, would you agree with that? Or is that too fundamentalist? Um. Yeah, I mean, I think we're we're both animated <clears throat> animated by the same spirit when we're speaking of this. Um, for me, the unhappiness of modern life is itself already enough to indict the entire system. Exactly. exactly. Whether or not it is sustainable. Yeah. For me, that's not the question. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want to sustain this. Yeah. Knowing what human life can be, how beautiful it can be, how joyful it can be, how authentic it can be, how intimate it can be. The, the, the gaudy, empty substitutes that we as a society accept in, in substitution for what life can be, is, that's just so, it's so dispiriting, so depressing, um, it's, it's, and so pale that, I mean, I can understand why, you know, somebody would would um, be excited about the metaverse and virtual reality and so forth, if the alternative is sitting in a, you know, a box all the time. I mean, if that's all you have, if you're disconnected from community, if you're disconnected from nature, if you look outside and the trees are nothing but scenery and you have no relationship that's multidimensional with them, knowing like when they flower and what birds live in that tree and, and what kind of soil it grows and, in. And Charles, let's not forget that that box is often a high rise box. And when you look out the window, you don't even see trees. And, yeah. and you don't see birds. You know, well, it, best case scenario, you do see some trees and birds. Right. <laughs> right. But but like even that's not that's not enough. We want to be in relationship. Mm -hmm. So you don't have any of that. Then, yeah, like the online world with its online adventures and online relationships mediated by technology. It's better than nothing. And so I think that we have to look at the deeper needs behind the successful marketing of these technologies. Because if we don't meet the deeper needs, then, you know, yeah, sure, hook me up to the to the Borg. Yeah, and I, you know, I, I myself have to confess that I've ended up watching quite a lot of Netflix series uh -huh. in, over the last couple of years, and it is horrifying how 
I mean, I'm not quite sure how much of this is going to happen on the metaverse, but I imagine that you create enough sort of drama and you get people hooked into what's going to happen to these characters and who's going to get murdered, who's going to be happy. So you move more and more into a world that I can't believe myself that ended up talking to my husband about, oh, I wonder what's going to happen to her. (laughs) And I remember years ago, laughing at people who were watching soap operas and who got involved in people's lives. And I was so disparaging of that. And I find myself, partly, of course, with COVID, uh, being in lockdowns and cut off from the connections and the people. So we, you know, in, in these 40 years since I've been sort of looking at these things for, for, what is it, you know, first 20, even maybe 30 years, we had so much more connection in our lives. We had so much more getting together with friends, playing music together, cooking together. And um, now with COVID, as I say, I've ended up watching Netflix and getting yeah. caught up in these stories. And I think um, most people, I hope, who are listening to us, and I think if they're listening to you and me, they are, also tuned into the richness of the living world and understand what we're talking about when we talk about that even those very, very beautifully constructed Netflix series are still pale in comparison with real life. And that uh, the meaning in our lives, once we start listening to our bodies, our, our heart, our, ourselves at a deeper level, we realize that it's, it's that deeper con- connection with life, with real human beings, with real plants and animals. It's an yeah. interdependence that gives our life meaning and richness. And yeah. we should also yeah. acknowledge how clear that's becoming in many of the therapies, like what Johan Hari talks about and so on. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, I think some of those Netflix series are, are quite well done, you know, and I, I can appreciate uh, artistry and enjoy them sometimes. Uh, and I think that, but a lot of people are getting like, kind of addicted to those things, which they wouldn't be if they had, for example, neighbors to gossip about instead of soap opera characters to gossip about. Like like people, I mean, this is, I've been reading uh, David Graeber's new book, this posthumously published new book. And one of the, it's really good, The Dawn of Everything. Really, really good. Really? Uh, yeah, powerful. Um, yeah, I know you will. you would appreciate it. Uh, but one of the okay. things that I just remember from that is how is basically saying how much time people everywhere spend arguing and like gossiping. Like that that's a kind of a social grooming and it meets the deep need for connection. So like I can't gossip about my neighbors because we have no relationship. Like I see them coming in and out of their garage, you know, maybe sometimes in their yard or something like that. And I I strike up conversations and stuff. But it's not like we have known each other for generations and I know their relatives and and they know my son and, uh, you know, and my grandfather. Yeah. Like we don't have that much really to talk about. Yeah. So so if we did, we still might watch Netflix sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> but it better be pretty good if I'm going to, you know, be like 
I mean, yeah, in traditional cultures, people would, would go to performances sometimes. There would be traveling storytellers, traveling musicians, you know. Um, it, it was one another thing in Graeber's book that was interesting is just like how much long distance travel there actually was in pre-modern times. Oh, really? Um, I didn't realize he'd been studying yeah. modern times. Oh, yeah, yeah. So anyway, like, yeah. Uh, so I don't want to say that, you know, the future, the more beautiful world my heart knows is possible doesn't have film, cinema, yeah. uh, or video games even, or any of that. But it's just how addictive these become when when real life, in-person, physical, material, sensory, real connection has been stripped away and then substitutes sold to us that also happen to keep us under political control and economic control. Well, actually, I, I do want to come back to the gossiping because you're actually, this is one of my favorite themes I've often talked about the fact that we need to gossip and meddle more. But what I discovered was that when people were interdependent, when they did know each other's grandfathers, when they did know the source of water and their commons that they shared, when they were interdependent, that meddling was just as much, or I would say more than anything, coming out of real concern. It was mm -hmm. coming out of concern for the well-being of people on whom they depended. It wasn't altruism. It wasn't altruism as we know it. It was the deep, visceral recognition that we're in this together. We depend on each other. And there was a lot, you know, in those more traditional settings when there was that interdependence. Women, you know, the grannies and the aunties had so much more influence and they were particularly good at meddling and gossiping. They were particularly attuned to the, the subtleties mm -hmm. of the joys and the sadnesses of people around them. And it's interesting, you know, my sort of indigenous Bible is Tibetan and their Tibetan classical medical books that go back a thousand years. So some of this was recorded there. They actually talk about women being more in tune in that mm. way and better sort of managing, managing people. I love that you're saying that, that Graeber was looking back at more traditional pre-modern cultures because of course I totally believe that we can learn so much from them. And I think there's a, a problem that very often in the West as people wake up to the needs of nature, the needs of Mother Gaia, and, and the, the need for us to conform more with her needs. And there I'm basically saying we need to conform more with the richness of it, which has above all to do with biodiversity and so on. And that would actually bring greater richness to our life. But as people wake up to that, they tend to develop theories about learning from nature about how to organize human society. And I'm, I'm seeing left, I mean, all across the board, left to right politically, that people can come up with all kinds of theories about how nature functions and what that teaches us about human society and what we should do. But I think if we try to learn from pre-modern cultures, humans interacting with nature, I think we're on much more solid ground coming back to, mm -hmm. you know, no, this idea is there a sort of a solid reality out there. The key, 
for me is that if we were to get there, we would then understand that the infinite complexity, the infinite diversity of the living world means that it's not solid in the way we would imagine. It's a dance, it's a constant dance, but because it's alive and dancing, it is so rich, it's so, it's so much more, well, partly it's so much more satisfying, but it is also, I would maintain, how we evolved. This is who we are. You know, 99.9% .9 of our time as humans on this planet, we lived in intergenerational community, deeply, deeply connected to all of life. And, not, and the connection was an interdependence. You know, we don't like to talk in the West about dependence. We think it's a, it's a sort of nasty thing that we don't want anything to do with it. But that's part of the malaise. And um, yeah, I mean, I know, I know that you um, would, I think, would agree with what I'm saying. And are you saying that Graeber also generally is in agreement with what we're saying? Yeah, although the, maybe the one, you know, if we were, if he were still alive and we were really going to go into a deep dive with him, um, I think we'd have really fruitful, um, like really productive conversation about the diversity of uh, pre-modern and indigenous people. Um, basically, one of the main theses of this book is that is that these societies tried pretty much everything. They had a highly developed political consciousness. They weren't merely slaves to nature, but they actually considered how is human life best lived in relation to, to the places where they lived. And they tried experiments. They had a discourse. They had conversations about how should we live? How should we organize ourselves? So he's kind of a critic of like these... Um, you know, man in the state of nature type of arguments, whether Hobbesian or Rousseauian. Uh, he says there is no default state of human beings and that a lot of what we understand about or what we think we understand about hunter-gatherers came from the ethnographies in the golden age of anthropology from like the late 19th to the mid 20th century when we studied the hunter-gatherers that were still around, which were generally in very marginal places, but that didn't doesn't tell us much about what they were like, you know, in the Pacific Northwest or Florida uh, or, you know, somewhere very rich. And there they had sedentary societies. They had hierarchies. In some places they had slavery. In some places were very patriarchal. Some places were not, you know, they everything under the sun. And basically he's saying, the question is, if human society can take so many forms and be consciously examined and experimented with and changed, why are we so stuck? Why are we so in the grips of one system that is uh, driving us toward uh, somewhere no one actually wants to go? Yeah. Yeah, and I, I mean, the somewhere includes, as we were saying earlier, this epidemic of depression and uh, mm -hmm. escalating, escalating depression. And not to forget also about the physical illnesses that are on the increase so dramatically, you know, particularly with children. 
you know, we have levels of toxicity, all of this plastic world that's being promoted so actively, this consumer culture that's being imposed around the world, and that looks very sexy on a screen, but what is the cost in terms of the mining, in terms of the heavy metals, in our food, in our clothing, in the air we breathe, this, um, yeah, and all that. So I think, you know, you were saying earlier that in the beautiful world that we want, which I think is really, I, I'd love us to talk a bit more about what you see as that, what that beautiful world might look like. Because you were saying earlier that, yes, we would have our Netflix series, but we wouldn't be so addicted to them. But I guess I would say that the we probably wouldn't have Netflix series. I think what we would have in a world that would allow the diversity to flourish, that is, I would argue, is essential just for pure material reasons. But we're also arguing for psychological, spiritual reasons. That maintaining that richness and diversity will mean that much of the screen world and certainly any screen world that is dominating the entire population of the globe, we will have realized that the structures that allow for total domination across the world are an antithetical to our well-being and to the well-being of the planet. Wouldn't you agree with that? So we might have- I don't know. I mean, I don't know what, in, in a world where the most important kinds of connection have been restored. I don't know what forms of artistic expression and storytelling we will adopt. Um, you know, maybe it looks like Netflix, maybe it doesn't. For me, that's not, for me, like to say is Netflix good or bad is not actually the most important issue. You know, it's a distraction well, the, from- The point I was yeah. making there is that it is a part of a global monopoly that is dominating yes. the minds across the world and is part of a tool that is synonymous with eradicating different languages. Right. The words that are, from our point of view, that diversity of languages has to do with a deep, again, respect for and interdependence with the diversity of the planet. And so, you know, so as I see it, in the future, there would be communication as there was even hundreds of years ago, that is even carried globally. There can be travel that includes people traveling globally. But I think we will have realized that eradicating cultural diversity to that extent with a monopolistic series in English that reaches the entire globe is not in our interest. I think we will have understood that we need to maintain diversity at that level as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, so it could be Netflix, you know, in America or whatever, but not, not also in Mongolia. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, you know, I, it's it's possible that there will be, um, well, you know, let's not go too far into those uh, no, abstract questions. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'll, I'll just want to go back to the topic of depression that you named, um, simply because I know that in the last two years, so many people have visited um, depression, uh, despondency, despair. Uh, and I wanna to speak to it because like, it's actually inevitable. 
if you want to make somebody depressed, you simply cut them off from their relationships. You know, the classic experiments on addiction with rats, where they put them in cages and gave them access to heroin. And eventually they chose the heroin over food itself, which seemed to indicate that we better keep these drugs away from people. But later um, in the 80s and 90s, uh, a researcher, I think his name was Bruce Shapiro, repeated the experiments. But instead of using rats in these individual cages, he built a rat park for them where they got to run around and play and mate and, you know, raise little rat families and, you know, like enjoy a good rat life. And in those settings, they did not, they were not susceptible to addiction at all. They might try the heroin, but they would be uninterested in it. And even rats who were physiologically addicted, when they were moved from their isolated cages to rat paradise, they weaned themselves off the, the drugs. So if, if, if people think that through their strength of will and spiritual understanding that they can maintain a joyful, active state of being when you are cut off from relationship. I mean, I'm not going to say it's impossible, but it's, it's a totally unnatural and difficult situation that we are cast in. And, and COVID restrictions, they only took to an extreme something that has been gathering force for my entire lifetime. Yeah, you know, exactly. it wasn't just with COVID that all of a sudden shopping, dating, working, meetings, and education became something you did alone in a room. Like this is a this is like an intensification of a very long trend. And and the good news, I think, or the hopeful news is that maybe having seen where this trend is taking us, we'll start to question it. And we'll say, do we really want to go this direction anymore? Like what what are the precious things that yeah. Yeah. Don't you think that's already happened? I mean, I that's I feel things have really, as it were, backfired for those who want to keep us going down this path of isolation, mm -hmm. mega urbanization, and uh, constant, constant pressure to move towards relating to technology and to anonymous structures rather than real people. That's the AI path that's being pushed on us now. But COVID so clearly led for an appetite for the opposite, you know, People started even, you know, at the level of connecting to life, you know, they started gardening and keeping chickens mm -hmm. and baking bread together, you know, examples of people who weren't allowed to really get close to each other, but on street corners, play music once a week, you know, to have, you know, cross, cross, yeah. and like in Italy to, you know, singing to each other. We, we've been having this, like, yeah, Helena, we, 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 um, so we, we, you know, we're going to go see last Christmas, we were going to go see the Nutcracker Suite. And turns out, you know, we buy the tickets. Turns out we can't go because we're not vaccinated. Uh, so, so even when, you know, things opened up and you could have public performances anymore, a lot of us who have been resisting this whole hysteria, we couldn't go anyway. But, you know, instead... We had like this gathering 
um, at at someone's house, and like all these musicians came, and we had our own. It was better than sitting and watching a performance. Ten times better. Ten and, and and another like I was. That I, I, we have so many stories. In, in fact, even like if if COVID hadn't happened, our son, we have an eight year old son, he would be going right now to you know a Montessori school or a Waldorf school, and it would be pretty good. And we get to know the other parents, but it wouldn't be community because, as you were saying, we're not dependent on each other. We don't need each other. Yeah. Like they could quit the school, and someone else comes in, and we keep paying our tuition, but because of COVID and because, you know, we didn't want to send our child into mask dystopia, as far as I can tell. And, you know, we, we found some other parents of like mind. We started our own little homeschool pod and we're never going back. Yeah. And we need each other. Yeah. This group of parents, we need each other. And there are millions of people around the world who are just, as you're saying, we're like building new institutions on a very local level. It's yeah. really happening. I want people to be really aware that this is happening and this is part of our localization work. This is all about building that community interdependence, that face-to-face interdependence and not just between humans, but between humans and the living world on which they rely, particularly for their basic needs, you know, food, clothing, shelter. And it's happening and it's wonderful. But I think people would be stronger and I think they will be um, more more effective if they also keep an eye out for what our governments with the pressure from giant global monopolies, what they're pushing us into. And that's, you know, where it comes to what I'd love us to also discuss that many of the people who are now starting their own schools, they're even beginning to build health systems together, they're beginning to be really concerned about food security and understanding the importance of small diversified farms to feed their region. There's a lot happening. But many of those people still believe that AI is a good thing. They're incorporating, you know, the thinking that, yeah, farming is hard work. Let's let's have the robot do the weeding and they're also sort of dreaming of UBI, of universal basic income. And I, I believe that being clear about the extent to which, and this is probably what I was saying about Netflix as well, to the extent that these tools that could seem fine coming into our little community, but to the extent that they are part of a mega industrial techno-economic, military complex. I know I'm sounding like a 60s or 70s hippie when I say that, but actually this is what we're talking about. We're talking about an an interlinked system that is coming to dominate our governments, Mm -hmm. coming to dominate and colonize every source of knowledge, every source of knowledge from the school books at kindergarten to to science. And it's been been going on for a long time. And it's been going on with the help of a lot of good people, a lot of well-intentioned people who have been sold on this path of progress. And now to see many of these people who are actually building the healthier, more localized, diversified relationships to nature and to each other, that they're still falling 
or that um, the salesmanship from the top worries me a lot. I'd love to hear what you say about it. Well, I think that a lot has changed in the last couple of years and that a lot of people who were formerly, you know, kind of curious and excited about AI and genetic engineering, to name two, are now completely wary and suspicious of those things. Like a lot of people in, let's call it the health freedom movement, are just completely, they're, I mean, they know what AI is doing as far as, you know, automated surveillance, facial recognition. I mean, one of the biggest uses of AI is facial recognition. I mean, we're, we're understanding that these are all tools of totalitarianism, which is, you know, operated by the fusion of corporations and government. And we're having none of it. Um, UBI uh, also. Um, I mean, I used to, to be a proponent of UBI, but always though with, with a caveat, like when, because when we become dependent on whoever is administering the UBI, then we become subject to their requirements there. And, and they can, especially if you combine it with digital central bank currency, then they can just cut you off and if the the organic economy the 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 peer to peer economy has been destroyed and you're only reliant the only way you can get money is from a central institution then you're completely at the mercy of that institution so in our current situation like i think that there is a beautiful impulse behind ubi and i could talk a lot about about where it's coming from but as, but if it is a matter of handing over even more, like we were talking about dependence before, dependence is wonderful depending on who you're dependent on. Exactly. And if you're dependent on the military, industrial, pharmaceutical, agricultural, NGO, industrial complex, then that's, you know, that's not the kind of, of dependence I want. It better be independent than to be dependent on that. But the step beyond that is then to become dependent on people you actually know and and plants and animals that and soils and waters that you're in relationship to in a relationship of mutual care like that's where we want to go yes choosing wisely whom do you want to depend on you want to depend on a system where you actually have no idea on, on whom you're depending no idea because as we become dependent on the dominant system, it's continually creating longer and longer distance relationships, more and more anonymity, a complete blind vulnerability. And this is, this is also partly, it was interesting what you said about Graeber's talking about earlier pre-modern societies, some of them having slavery and some of them having hierarchy, et cetera. And there was this great diversity, but I would argue that in all instances, those div divisions were more human scale. And therefore, you, you knew, as it were, who is, the, who is at the top of the ladder? Who is it that's dominating our lives? They would have names and faces. Mm -hmm. But the key thing that happened with modernity was with the help of the long arm of technology, shifting very rapidly and progressively and with supposedly particularly a lot of cheap oil, 
into this globalized system where that disappeared. And, and that's why, you know, people would come out to Ladakh, for instance, and say, oh, the monks have far too much power. This is feudal. You know, the, this is hierarchical. It's feudal. And, you know, when I try to explain that, you know, living in that culture, I was so aware that every monk in that monastery was somebody's brother, somebody's son, somebody's uncle or father. And that there was this face-to-face -face interdependence. Those monasteries completely depended on the people. And in the meanwhile, what the anthropologists who were coming in and critiquing this, what they were doing was rolling out the red carpet for the system that was bringing in those anonymous forces to dominate utterly and totally everything mm -hmm. from there. We need to step back and look at the bigger picture to be clearer about which system we're supporting. You know, are we becoming dependent on and continuing to support this rolling, steamrolling global path, or are we going to start looking at how we can support both locally and globally coming back to life, coming back to reconnection. And as you, you know, as you so beautifully talk about the, the, the reconnection that's essential for our well-being. And I, if I could also just say, you know, when you were talking about the rats and the cocaine, I wanted to also add that um, Alcoholics Anonymous has also shown uh, that it's the opposite, is the connection with others on your journey to healing that's so fundamental. And really what that's spelling out is community, spiritually connected, spiritually connected to the understanding of something bigger than ourselves. And when we feel that connection, we ourselves can suddenly feel expanded at the same time that we feel very small and humble. And so it's such a beautiful truth that I think, you know, so many people who have suffered addiction and have gone through the 12 step program and so on will understand how it's possible to feel at one and the same time, relaxed and expanded, and at the same time, humbled and small. Can we imagine, Charles, that if we, should we go into that territory, which is more difficult, really more difficult, like, would we um, imagine that there's a world that we're moving towards where mega technologies have a place? I'm not one to discard technology and write it off as a big mistake because I see that with each advance in technology, new forms of beauty and wonder are available to us. But what I can say for sure is that our current predicament, predicament we, we, the, our deliverance from our current predicament will not come through some kind of new technology. That's technology is not going to save us. And to realize that is extremely important because the promise of technology has been ever since Descartes actually, he articulated this, the promise of technology has been that it's going to deliver us unto paradise. It's yeah. just one invention away. We've almost got the problem conquered. We're all, we've almost engineered suffering out of existence. We've almost you know, engineered the earth to make it per 
but but there's a few little problems left. There's some antibiotic resistance. There's some herbicide resistance. You know, the new hydroponic factory, precision fermentation, like by nanotechnology. To, like, but as soon as we, oh, and also speaking of 5G, the incorporation of the entire world into a data set that can be rationally administered by artificial intelligence algorithms. And once we've got every single point on earth mapped and, and, and coded and every gene and every bacteria and every plant under control, then we'll be in paradise. So that mindset of progress, of technological progress, that is the very story that separates us from what actually is the foundation of human well-being. So to so where I would agree with you, and I think that this is much more important than any disagreement we may or may not have about, you know, is there, what is the role of technology in the future? I mean, where the important thing is that we have to wake up to the fact that our savior is leading us further and further down the road to perdition. Once we see that this, where the solution isn't and we stop in our tracks, then we can look around and it becomes really obvious what we really need and want right now. And when we meet those needs, then, okay, then we can make a wise decision about what technology we want to adopt and for what purpose. But it won't be because of this blind pursuit of a mirage that, in case you haven't noticed, is always just as far away as it ever was. The elimination of illness, the elimination of suffering, the elimination of poverty, you know? I mean, you'd think after 300 years of industrial progress that we'd be almost there by now. But no, we're just as far away as ever. In fact, even worse. Much worse. We're much further away. And that, yeah. I think that's one of the facts that's coming out now that I hope is going to be part of the wake up too, that in terms of poverty, uh, books like Julia Shaw, The Overworked American yeah. and Richard Dalsway, showing that people were working in America one month more per year uh, between the 60s and 90s, you know, just to stay in place. And, you know, we've reached a point now, this techno-economic progress in Korea and Japan has reach a point now where people get a week's holiday a year, but they're even afraid to take that because of the pressure and the competition. And concomitant with all that is to be more and more cut off from nature, living in bigger and bigger mega cities. We have to have a lot of compassion for them and be really ready to understand that there are so many people of goodwill who are still sold on this path and who are very frightened by an alternative view. And, and I think there, don't you, I mean, I'm seeing now a lot of the people who are pulling their children out of school and who are not wanting to be vaccinated are also people who are convinced that the people who are promoting the Great Reset and who are promoting the vaccines are totally, completely aware of how destructive the impact is, but that's not my experience. What no, do you think of that? no I, I, I tend to agree with you that malevolence is a very poor explanation of what's going on today. And not only is it a poor explanation, but it is a, um, 
diversion from understanding the systems and narratives that most people are not even aware of that create the roles of a Bill Gates, of an Anthony Fauci, et cetera, et cetera, of a Klaus Schwab. Um, those people, like those roles are necessary in the system and the ideology that prevails. So we, if we get rid of those people without changing the system and the ideology, then replacements will step in. Absolutely. However, it's, I mean, it's also true though, that, that, um, there, that some very psychopathic, ruthless, and uncompassionate people are well at home in systems that distance us from each other. Like the systems are custom made for those kinds of people. But, but ultimately, yeah, um, it, it's like this, this, um, this, this simplification um, actually disempowers us as, to, as agents of change. For me, over-specialization linked to large scale, that's the enemy we should be looking at. And you know what you said about the distancing I, I, you know, I sort of feel when we look at the rise of this whole system, this, this sort of boarding school training that young men would have in England, you know, was a perfect setup for creating men that would be hardened enough to repress their own emotions and therefore be more willing to go out and conquer the world, you know, as colonial and, and slave, slave traders, you know, which was the sort of foundation of this global system. So you train young children to suppress their connection with themselves, their, you know, their deeper embodied experiential and, and their sensibilities in order to become hardened enough to then have this cold exterior um, and, and not just cold exterior, cold interior that allows them then to conquer the world. And I'm afraid now the training, you know, what we see happening with STEM, in schools, or all of it emphasizing this left brain, which thoughtful people like Ian McGilchrist, you know, are really seriously worried about where we are misshaping the brains of our children. And we know now that to really ensure that our children don't go in that direction, we, be, we need to be emphasizing their eye-hand coordination, manual dexterity, their health of their bodies, you know, and their connection to meaningful activities like actually growing plants and seeing with their own eyes the benefits of what they do and developing those reciprocal relationships with others. And I remember friends started an eco-literacy project in Berkeley in the early 90s and and they were then already looking at the impact of the screen on young children and seeing how with the screen, you know, the young child got the impression, oh, I just pushed that button and all those houses are gone or I push another button and I've just built a hundred houses. And, and then they turn to play with other children and those children have a will of their own and they're suddenly, you know, irrationally intolerant and and so like you you know you were talking about this training of the left brain and the distortion of the human being that comes through uh, modern education i mean it's been taken to such an extreme now 
the damage is so deep that sometimes it, you know, I go to a place of despair uh, because I'm aware of what's been lost. Most people aren't even aware of, of the depth of the loss. No. But there's another thing that I know for sure, which is that if it were hopeless, Helena, we wouldn't be here. Yeah. There is a logic to creation that matches gifts and needs in a mysterious way. And I know that I wouldn't be here if I didn't have a role to play in bringing us back to wholeness. It's not hopeless. Yeah, no, I mean, I think I, I, I get into a discussion actually with John, my husband, who's sort of a bit allergic to this clinging to hope. And I've had other critics because we organize some conferences. In fact, I think you were there, you know, called Hope in a Time of Crisis. Yeah. For me, where there is life, there's hope. And where there's, um, and that doesn't mean attachment to a goal. Some people misunderstood, misunderstand hope as being, you know, in this rather unhealthy way attached to a specific goal. But for me, I'm talking about the energy and the, the joy of appreciating how much is still alive. And my hope is derived from the conviction that ultimately life will win. You know, ultimately this, this sort of one-eyed, uh, I love that quote from E. e. Cummings. Do you know that one? It's, it's um, as long as we have lips to sing and kiss with, who cares if some one-eyed son of a bitch invents a machine to measure spring with? And so for me, I see this sort of one-eyed monster as being so, so counterproductive and so against what most people want, what most people hope for, but also want and are proving that they want. So for me, there's so much evidence around the world, even preceding COVID, part of what we are always encouraging people to do is to find their tribe, find by that we mean very, very strongly seek out some like-minded people. They may not be in your family. They may not even be among your neighbors. They may not be in your workplace, but seek out some like-minded people to start a journey with of rethinking and reconnection. Um, because it's so, so important to, to have turn the eye to a we, you know, to feel that you're not alone on this journey when there's so much pressure in the opposite direction. If you enjoyed this discussion, you might be interested in Local Future's new collection of essays, Life After Progress, Technology, Community and the New Economy. Charles Eisenstein writes about the book. As these pages show, beyond progress lies not stagnation or collapse, but a profound renewal of community, society, and ecology. You can find the collection at our website, localfutures.org. You can also find there our freely available documentary film, Planet Local, A Quiet Revolution, which features Charles alongside many others. Consider screening this film with a group of friends as a way to activate like-minded people locally around a vision for big picture change. Until next time, 
Thanks for listening to the Local Futures podcast. 